Hello, I'm Julian Bergini and welcome to the latest in a series of micro-philosophy podcasts looking at how different philosophical traditions around the world shape the way we think. They've been made in conjunction with the Berggrün Institute's Philosophy and Culture Centre, the goal of which is to develop fresh ideas through comparative and interdisciplinary work and relate these insights to the pressing issues of our day. This is the last of three podcasts in conversation with participants in one of the Centre's workshops. This one was in Stanford, California and focused on different conceptions of self. Today, we're going to ask whether we have a problem in the West of too much self, and if so, whether the East can provide the antidote. Joining me were Rebecca Goldstein, a writer and philosopher who was recently awarded the National Humanities Medal, Peter Hershock, Director of the Asian Studies Programme at the East-West Centre at the University of Hawaii, Pico Ayer, a writer whose subjects include Japan, Globalism, Graham Greene and the Dalai Lama, Jay Ogilvy, Dean of Presidio Graduate School, and David Wong, Professor of Philosophy at Duke University. I began by asking Peter Hershock what he made of the idea that we suffer from too much self. Yeah, I think some of it's uh, a problem of nomenclature, because I don't think that it's so much that there's too much self, but too much self-centeredness. So that the self, just being person, our relationships with others, the roles we have, our engagement, you can't really have too much of that. You have as much as you have. But what we can have too much is too much focus on ourselves uh, as something independent from our situation and the world around us. And we don't have really the skills for engaging one another better. So we're not taught how to do that better. We learn kind of growing up in the West, you are who you are, be all that you can be. Uh, it's the individual first. And that's a real liability if you're trying to engage a world that's really, really diverse with different points of view because you need to somehow proactively not just differ from others, but differ for them. And that's something that Asian traditions like Buddhism provide concrete training for being able to do. Well, what's the basic philosophical idea there? I mean, I mean, people talk about an idea of no self, which maybe is a problematic way of putting it, but what's the core idea? There? I think the core idea is that for most of us, the conflict that we find ourselves in, the troubles that we have, the suffering that we have, are really a function of feeling that we're at the brunt of some force from outside, that something we're not responsible for and which we're not involved is impacting us in a way we don't like, we want it to change. And the Buddhist response is to say, if you, if you realize that, and you can work with that notion of, I'm the subject to these forces, and instead engage with those so that you recognize you're a part of them already, then you're in a position to start to change those dynamics. So it's no self-teaching in a Buddhist tradition isn't about the absence of something. Uh, it's the absence of constraints, maybe on our ability to engage freely with the world around us, to really relate freely, to not be compulsively present. Now, when you pick up here, your kind of perhaps encounter with this is more experiential than philosophical. You lived in Japan for a long time, and you talked about the sense in which there's this idea that the importance of getting yourself out of the way in Japanese mm-hmm. culture. So perhaps you can give some concrete examples of how in Japan it seems there is that less of an emphasis of putting yourself at the centre. Yes, I mean, I'll start by saying, I think, to me, erasing the self is a form of selfishness. And the reason one would do it is to be more happy. 
because I think almost everybody, whether she has a religious orientation or not, knows that she's happiest when she's deeply involved in something. She's having an intimate encounter with somebody she loves, when she's in a rich conversation, when she's lost herself in a play or a scene. And we say, I forgot myself, I forgot the time, I forgot where I was. And that's usually the definition of where we're happiest. And where we're most caught up in, where am I going and how am I going to get my resume together, we're usually most jangled and less happy. So, to answer your question, I did move straight from Midtown Manhattan to uh, a temple in Kyoto, because I thought, growing up in England and the United States, I'd been taught how to speak. Maybe it'd be a good le- idea to learn how to listen. And maybe I'd actually be happier listening and get much more in news material than just keeping myself company all the time. And already I'm stuck in that for 24 hours a day. And I thought that the schools that I'd been to in England and the US was good at teaching me how to push myself forwards. But maybe by becoming relatively invisible... Again, I would be responsive to things much larger and wiser than myself. So I suppose it's almost like a Copernican revolution to take, pick it up from what Peter was saying. And I'm not a Buddhist, I should say, I don't have any religion. But I just thought that so long as I'm making the self the centre of my life, I'm probably not very happy. But if um, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a walk, I'm meeting somebody interesting, I'm, I'm going to a museum, I'm usually much richer and I'm actually being expanded. So you could say it's even a means to... Helping oneself. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you give me examples, perhaps, of in Japan, hmm. you, you'll notice the way in which people have this uh, placeless focus on themselves. Two tiny examples. When I go to a film with my Japanese wife, I had always been raised and encouraged to think when you share a cultural experience with somebody, you have a great discussion afterwards. In Japan, I find I go to a film with my wife, she has a rich experience, I have a rich experience. And then we don't say a word about it afterwards. And actually, that is, is the sharing. Rather than swapping our ideas or opinions, we've been together, you know, like in a church when you're singing a hymn or something. Uh, secondly, when I go to the neighbourhood park across from my apartment in the autumn, and everybody in the neighbourhood is admiring the maple leaves in the same way, and I know this all sounds very wishy-washy or airy-fairy, but it, it's akin to walking into a cathedral, say. And the... To some degree, I would say the religion of Japan is the, the cyclical process of seasons that you're buying for the way you bow before the light going through a stained glass window. And so in some sense, what, what is original in me is the least interesting aspect of me. And as I go and I marvel at the maples, oh, aren't they beautiful? I will say that in exactly the same word as all the 200 people around me, and that's the blessing of it, that I'm not trying to imprint myself on the scene or say something different. And that's not something I have, can fully embody, but I thought it was something useful to learn for somebody who'd grown up in England and the US with very different kind of instruction. Yeah. I mean, maybe Paul, I wonder what you make of this. I don't want to challenge it. I do want to provide maybe a different way of talking about it. Yes, in a way, our problem is too much self-centeredness, but uh, it could also be not enough. Uh, Pico made mention of perhaps a doing the self-good in some way by widening it. In one hat, speaking as a Confucian, I I could say that to do the self-good is to recognize that uh, we emerge and are sustained by our social relationships, first of all, by our family. And my mother impressed me throughout my life by saying, uh, well, I don't get why Americans are so focused on their, their happiness. Isn't the point to be good? You know, that's something I carried with me as a resource and makes me comfortable in my differentness. And that's what I think families can do for you. And so, friends, uh, our our communities, uh, I can say I've I've gotten where I have. 
through countless people who have supported me or challenged me. So that's that's why I think where the self and and others are not to be opposed to each other in relationship. But speaking as a Taoist, because I'm also that, I want to say that expectations, social expectations can be heavy. Uh, Conventionalized social duties can be constricting. Uh, They can be. I I don't necessarily say the Confucians would endorse that. But sometimes that happens. So we have to be aware of the costs of emerging from an excess of social relationship and try to make room for the unexpected, the unpredictable, opening up to new social relationships, to different kinds of people, and to the non-human, which I think you know, Pico has also mentioned that one pro- problem I think we have is that we've enclosed ourselves in these purely human social environments. The cities we live in are just made of everything that people make, and we forget and we forget that we live in this much larger place from which the Taoists say we can learn a lot by observing non-human animals and by observing the forces of nature. And uh, we don't forget that the Wright brothers learned how to make airplanes by watching birds on the, on the beach and uh, flapping their arms, <laughs> trying to get how uh, the birds angled their wings to create lift. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Rebecca Goldstein, like, like me, you're from the West, you're from this society, which, if you listen to these kind of ideas in perhaps the wrong spirit, you might take them to be some damnation of our horrible, selfish individualism. And you've also talked about the will to matter, that as individuals we want to matter as individuals. Now, do you think this view is in conflict with what we've heard so far, or does it actually fit in in ways that make perfect sense to you? No, um, I mean, the thing that I've been most impressed with is um, is the commonality uh, between these goals, these searches, uh, not to waste, you know, this, this life that we have to achieve something worth living. And, you know, these are all proposals as to how best to do it. And the great lessons that I'm taking from listening to the Eastern tradition is, uh, you know, we're trying to go about the same thing, and we're, there are different traditions, how best to do it. And the, the image that keeps coming to me is of, you know, somebody running after a uh, bird feather, you know, trying to catch it and uh, churning up all this wind, uh, trying to, you know, get to it. And, you know, what I'm hearing from, from these other traditions is, you know, no, I mean, we're all trying to catch that, that feather. I mean, we want... Uh, to grab, to make something, uh, not to waste, not to squander, given the incredible opportunity uh, to have been born. How many were not born? Here we are, we're the lucky ones. You know, every time I, I hear the question of, you know, how do we face our death, I always think, we're so lucky, we got to be born, right? That, that, that this question of how to face our death, I mean, we're the fortunate ones, really. <laughs> So when I say the will to matter, I don't mean this assertive, western, me, me, me um, universe, look at me, uh, or the rest of human society, look at me. I mean, you know, how do we just not squander this incredible privilege of existing? And what we have to do is look at the great number of traditions, of of wisdom traditions uh, that have been laid out before us. But, you know, this idea, I very much respond to this idea of being 
um, you know, lost in something other than yourself. This is my my image of chasing the feather and never getting to it. But but really, in fact, being lost in something that isn't yourself. Now, of course, every artist, every thinker, really has this experience, right? I don't know that this is an East-West thing. It is a kind of I wouldn't call it a selfishness, but it's a commitment to oneself, right? A commitment not to waste this opportunity. And one of the best ways to realize that is to find the passion, find the, the, the something bigger than yourself with which you can merge and um, in, in whichever you know, skills, talents, personality, traits you have that makes that suitable. All I hear from all of this is uh, how much agreement there is in the, the task before us uh, of being human. One of the very interesting things about discussions like this is that we start out, in a sense, with dichotomies, East, West, and so forth, and then we find they're a bit more complicated than that. I mean, Joe, there'll be one perhaps strong dichotomy people come up with this, is they say that these two radically different ideas of the self, right? There's this idea of the self as this unchanging pearl core, which, which, which is stays the same throughout your life and all this there's no self at all it's a complete illusion I mean how might we kind of understand uh, sort of a, a middle way which kind of does justice in a sense to both what's right in both sides of those intuitions the third way for me is to grant the plurality within each of us that I have my Zeus my Dionysus my Hermes my Athena you know the, the male and female presences uh and each has an autonomy that I think is more than just a mood. When I get into these different personae in myself, my body changes, my voice changes, uh, you know, and I think that is true for many of us. And, and to realize that is to become liberated from some kind of ideal of self-identity, that you've got to be true to just oneself, one personality. Now, of course, there are ways to go wrong with this. I think we have discussed it. There's a, there's a history of madness. You know, the leading presenting symptoms in, in Freud's Vienna was hysteria. In the 50s, it was schizophrenia. Well, in more recent decades, a leading presenting system is borderline narcissistic personality disorder. Okay, So here in the United States, we, we've, we've maybe gone a little bit, taken too deep a dive oftentimes into the self to the extent of narcissism. Uh, in, in China... We have the little emperor syndrome with the one-child policy. One child, two parents, four grandparents doting on this one individual. This is not good for your mental health, I think. In Japan, we see the phenomenon of the hikikomori, the 1.5 million young people who will not leave their bedrooms. I mean, talk about self-involvement. Because they have, in effect, rejected an overbearing culture to which they say, no, thank you, I won't play. I won't leave my bedroom. So there are pathologies of self-involvement. And as we take this wonderful ride on individualism, which the whole world is doing, there's a worldwide trend from kind of collective values towards more individualistic values. As we take this ride, there are some off-ramps that have their dangers. I mean, it's interesting to work the pathologies of individualism and excessive focus on self. Because when one thinks about you know, ways of life and philosophies which emphasise that kind of loosening of connection to self and attachment to self, that's often sort of presented as though it's obviously a very good thing in an undiluted sense. But are there potential pathologies of no-self? 
if you like. Well, in the Zen tradition, there's this thing called meditation sickness. <laughs> Ding mm-hmm. Bing where you meditate and you think what you're supposed to be trying to do is to abstract yourself from the situation, detach from the situation, quiet everything down. And as one Chan master said, hey, the burnt out log in the middle of the forest covered by snow can accomplish much better than what you're trying to do. That's not being a Buddha. That's not engaging the world. So the liability at the abstraction from the kind of no-self model mm-hmm. is that it's another form of illusion. And the way I understand the Buddhist teaching, especially the teaching of no-self, is that the subject-object-self-other distinction, that's a bifurcation. Mm. It's a branching. So what happens if we follow our self-line back and follow that other line back? And there's a point at which they branch out from something shared. And that's the point that we want to be at, because that's the live nexus. That's where we can now move in a different direction. And it's realizing that we are what we mean for one another, That's really taking a new kind of responsibility. It's realizing that consciousness is this ongoing modeling in a biosocial medium of the meaning of the cosmos itself, ongoing, and we're part of it. We can rewrite the narrative of the world. I mean, I wonder if there's another potential uh, downside, which is on a cultural level. It has been suggested that cultures which de-emphasize individual and emphasize the collective, there's potential problems with obedience, and perhaps historically in Japan. Is that a genuine worry? Yes, well, I, I, in terms of the Confucian notion of harmony, which is often presented as an exemplar of that kind of social ideal, the danger is that it gets interpreted as agreement, conformity to certain doctrines, or, or agreement with those in authority or those who are higher up in the hierarchy. And the difficult thing is to make clear that productive forms of harmony involve bringing together people with different things to contribute, different points of view. And where the harmony comes in is that the people don't give up on their common project. They try to reconcile their differences so that they can go on together, do something constructive together, construct a life together. Uh, I think that's where difference comes in, uh, but the difference is between an ideal of harmony and an ideal, say, of individual rights, is the will to stay together and construct something together. And I, I think the, the muting itself, of course, has to be chosen, not enforced. And if it's enforced, it becomes constraint rather than liberation. I've been more than once to North Korea, and that's where you see the most dystopian form of what we've been talking about. So I, as somebody born in, in the West, am drawn to and want to learn from the community-mindedness of um, the East, that I'd lived for, in Japan for 28 years on a tourist visa, partly to remind myself I would never want to be Japanese. And of course, most of my Japanese friends look to me as coming from the land of possibility, California, where they're free of all those social constraints and where they can actually make more room for themselves than Japan or probably East Asia would ever allow. Yeah, I just wanted to say, I, I don't see this as a problem, as, as something that relates only to Eastern uh, societies. Uh, You know, we have the same problems in the West, where there are certain groups of people who are not, you know, really treated as if they matter. Everything is given to them. Now, here I might be asserting too much of a Western value, but, you know, the the value of, you know, a, a certain degree of autonomy. So, you know, that there are many groups, communities, 
And I, and I think particularly in terms of, of, of women who are often completely it's sort of given to them what their role is going to be and they don't really have uh, the, the options laid out to discover how they want to not squander this one life that they, they've been given, uh, you know, a, a life very much uh, defined in terms of duties and obligations and responsibilities. And I think that that's bad. There, there does have to be this balance for, for every individual, and it's, uh, you know, I don't see it as exclusively an Eastern problem at all. I like the idea of taking this notion of harmony back to its roots in music and acknowledging that the best harmonies, I think, are those that follow dissonance. Uh, there's, a, there's a chord toward the end of the second movement of Bach's Italian concerto that is known as a Neapolitan sixth. And its dissonance is so exquisite, it makes me weep. You know? And we need that in our harmony. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting observations someone made over the last couple of days was they believe there's a strange way in which the cultures where there's less external individuality, there's a lot of internal individuality, and the other way around. It reminds me of that Monty Python Life of Brian moment where he says to the crowd, you're all individuals, and they all answer in unison, yes, we're all individuals, which seems to be a wonderful metaphor for Western consumerism, apart from the one person who says, I'm not. Yes. So I, I'm not going to name which, which college it was, but I was visiting a college, and the president of the college said to me, our students are all very individualistic. They're all tattooed. I did not see the irony at all. That, that is brilliant. Well, thanks very much. The conversation, I think, has uh, done a lot to both reveal the extent to which we don't have these sharp lines. East-West thinking is a lot to them. But also, I think, showing how a lot of these issues are not just abstract philosophical ones. They actually have political, social, and even individual meaning. So thanks to you all for taking part. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. There will be more podcasts on world philosophies coming in 2016. To keep up to date, subscribe to the Microphilosophy iTunes feed or follow me on Twitter at Microphilosophy. And do check out the work of the Berggruen Institute's Philosophy and Culture Centre at philosophyandculture.berggruen.org. Until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>